Acts chapter 19. King Asa was one of the few good kings of Judah. And when he became king, the prophet Azariah gave him the following advice. It comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 15, the first couple of verses. Azariah said to King Asa, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you when you are with him. If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will forsake you. You notice there's three promises there that Azariah made to King Asa. He was speaking on behalf of the Lord. The first promise was that the Lord is with you when you're with him. The second promise is that if you seek him, he will let you find him. And then lastly, if you forsake him, meaning turn away from him or reject him, the Lord will ultimately turn away or reject you. So those are the three promises that the Lord spoke to King Asa through the prophet Azariah. This morning I want to focus on the second of those two, which is if you seek him, he will allow you to find him. And the reason I want to focus on that is because it's a principle that we find throughout the whole entire Bible it gets at the heart of who God the Father is. If somebody seeks him, he wants them to find him. If somebody seeks him, he will let them find him. We find it repeated throughout the Old Testament. I'm going to quote a couple of passages here. Proverbs chapter 8, verse 17. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me, find me. First Chronicles 28, verse 9, David told his son Solomon, If you seek him, he will let you find him. But if you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Isaiah 55, 6, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Jeremiah 29, 13, You will seek me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. So those are the promises we see in the Old Testament. God calling out, If you seek for me, I will allow you to find me. Jesus made similar promises in the New Testament. If you remember Matthew chapter 7, verse 8, he says, For everyone who asks, receives, and he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Jesus also said in Matthew chapter 11, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. And then he says this, And you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is God's son calling out to people saying, If you seek him, you will find him. That's probably one of my favorite things about God. You know, so oftentimes we find people who struggle trying to grasp and to claw their way to find this thing, this entity that they believe exists out there. We know him as God, the Heavenly Father, but they grope and they struggle. They claim to be looking and finding, but they're looking in all the wrong places. And what they really want is something to ultimately fit their mold or their picture of who the Heavenly Father really is. And yet God is up there screaming, If you honestly, genuinely want to find me and find me in truth, I will let you find me. And we know that he's given enough in all of creation. He has screamed how to know him. So again, that's one of my favorite things. And it's partly because I don't deserve to find him. And yet he's promised that if you genuinely seek, you will. And I'm a product of that, just like everyone here this morning. I believe most of you anyway. I genuinely sought for him. I desperately wanted to know him. And I really wasn't always looking in the right place, but I genuinely, in my heart, wanted to know God. And he ultimately cracked through and he made himself known to me. And fortunately, I found him, not because of my own efforts, In fact, I've shared before, he sent somebody to chase me down for at least six months that I continued to sort of push away, but at the same time begging God to open my eyes. And so I'm thankful 
that we have a God who says, if you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. And so that's at the heart and soul of our passage. Now in our culture today, finding God is often nothing more than an idiom that really means to become religious. I found God. Most of the time what they refer to or what they mean by that is that they've simply come to some type of religious belief, whatever that may be. But that's not what the Bible refers to as seeking the Father. Seeking the Lord involves a genuine desire to know the truth about Him. It's not just, you know, I want to know God. It's I want to know God for who He truly, really is. That's what it means in the Scriptures to seek the Lord, to want to know Him. It means to be somebody who wants to love and to serve Him once you discover who He is. It's not about religion. It's actually about seeking to genuinely know Him and to enter into a relationship on His terms. Asking the Father to reveal Himself to you, to understand Him accurately for who He really is. And so, the concept of Him letting us find Him then is very similar to that, and it's allowing God to reveal Himself to us in truth. So when you seek Him, it means that you want Him to reveal Himself to you in truth for who he really is, and you won't be satisfied with anything else. That's the biblical concept of seeking the Lord and him allowing us to find him. And it's those who accept that that ultimately come to faith in Jesus Christ and ultimately, therefore, know the Heavenly Father. So what does that have to do with our passage today? Well, we're going to look at basically two examples from our passage today. The first example is a group of individuals who were seeking the Lord and ultimately find Him because He reveals Himself to them. That's the first group. The second group is a group who refuses to do that. They're religious. They thought they were religious people anyway. But they hardened their heart and they refused to seek the Lord in truth. And as a result, they failed to find Him. And so we see this principle that I've shared with you this morning played out in our passage today. Let's go ahead and look at that first group. The first group is found in the first seven verses of chapter 19. And it's a group who I believe was honestly seeking the Lord, seeking the Messiah, and they ultimately end up finding him. When Paul arrives at Ephesus, he encounters some disciples, we're told. But as we'll see, they're not Christians yet. Look at the first three verses of chapter 19. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there was a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Luke calls these men disciples in this passage, and normally that would mean that they're Christians, especially in the book of Acts. But the rest of the passage kind of brings that into question, and it becomes a little clearer as we digest this, that they were not Christians at this point. At least that's my understanding and interpretation of this passage. I'll explain why. In all reality, they were likely simply disciples of John the Baptist. They hadn't quite come to know the Messiah yet. Turn to chapter 18, verse 24. Chapter 18, verse 24. We read something similar about some other individuals, or about another individual. And having spent some time there, he left and passed through Galatia, the region, or um, the Galatian region, and Phygia, strengthening the disciples. Now, a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, an eloquent man, came to Ephesus, and he was mighty in the Scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. If you remember, when we studied this passage, Apollos was somebody who was a disciple of John the Baptist, He came accurately teaching about the Messiah, but didn't know quite yet that it was Jesus who fulfilled what John the Baptist had prophesied. And so Priscilla and Aquila fill him in with the details. And so he was a man who was a disciple, but he wasn't a disciple of Christ, but a disciple of John the Baptist. And you remember what happened with him. Priscilla and Aquila simply helped him understand that the prophecies he was repeating from John the Baptist were fulfilled in Christ, and his response was immediate. Why? He was ready, he was willing, he was prepared to meet Christ 
Just needed somebody to say, the one John taught you about, the one you're now teaching about, he's already here, and he's here in Jesus Christ. What we find in these men today is something very similar. They were disciples of John the Baptist. The word disciple simply means to be a pupil or a student, and the Bible uses it to refer not just to the followers of Jesus, but uses it to refer to John the Baptist's disciples as well. If you remember, prior to Christ's earthly ministry, John the Baptist began preaching in order to prepare the Jews for the coming Messiah. I want you to turn to Mark chapter 1, if you will. Mark chapter 1, first eight verses, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you. He will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the water of the river Jordan, confessing their sins. John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie his thong or his sandal, of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John basically preached a number of things. The first was repentance from sin, and that was demonstrated through water baptism. They would come to John the Baptist, he would teach them about repentance, and they would express that repentance through water baptism. The second was that the Messiah was coming after him. The third thing John taught was that this Messiah would baptize his followers in or with the Holy Spirit. That's the message John the Baptist taught. It's time, it's time for you to repent because the Messiah is coming. When he comes, it'll be after me, and he will baptize you, not with water, but with the Holy Spirit. That's what John's disciples knew and understood. I believe that's what Apollos was actually teaching when he showed up in Ephesus. He was repeating John the Baptist's message. He just didn't know that it was Jesus. What's interesting is that after Jesus' earthly ministry started, John continued to preach that same message, believe it or not. And he did so until he was arrested, put in prison, and murdered. I want you to turn to John chapter 3. I think this is something we often forget. We kind of think that as soon as Jesus showed up, John stopped preaching, and now Jesus took over. And that's not at all the case. There was a period of time where their ministries overlapped where John continued to preach, pointing people to Christ, while Jesus and his disciples were out ministering as well. But not everybody quite grasped the connection between Jesus himself and the Messiah that John the Baptist was actually prophesying. So if you turn to John chapter 3, look at verse 22. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them, and he was baptizing, meaning Jesus' disciples were baptizing people in the name of Jesus. John also was baptizing in Anon, near Salim, because there was much water there. And so you see Jesus and John's ministries coinciding in different locations, and they now kind of show up in the same basic area. For John had not yet been thrown into prison, verse 24. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you beyond the Jordan, or to whom you have testified, behold, he was baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man cannot receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. So what we basically find here is that John the Baptist was still preaching and prophesying about the Christ while Jesus was here, and he was telling his disciples that Jesus was the one who fulfilled it. But apparently not all of them made that complete connection. They were still waiting for the Messiah. They believed John the Baptist. 
And that's understandable why that might happen because, again, they weren't always in the same area. It's not like John would show up on one side of the river and Jesus on the other side, and the whole time he preached, he's pointing to Jesus. But he's out ministering. He's out pointing people to Christ. They didn't live in the age of multimedia and YouTube and Facebook and everything else. But they were ministering at the same time. And so we find Apollos here shows up at Ephesus, still preaching the message of John the Baptist. These disciples we see here in Acts chapter 19 were likely of that vein. And we see that actually in the text. The context of this passage suggests that these men were disciples of John and not quite yet saved. You notice the first clue is when Paul asked them this very simple question. Verse 2, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, there's only two exceptions that I can find in the scriptures where people that had come to Christ did not receive the Holy Spirit immediately. One of them is the disciples of Jesus himself initially when he was still here in his earthly ministry. They expressed faith in Christ, his apostles, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit at that point because Christ had not gone away yet to his father and he hadn't bestowed the Holy Spirit upon them. We see that begin ultimately at Pentecost, do we not? That's the first instance where believers in Christ had not received the Holy Spirit yet. The second was the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. They didn't receive the Holy Spirit immediately because God chose to delay that so that he might send Peter down from Jerusalem to witness the Samaritans receiving the Holy Spirit as evidence that they were now part of God's family, the church. And so the Lord delayed that. But almost every other instance we can find in the scriptures, believers receive the Holy Spirit when they are bat- or when they profess their faith in Jesus Christ. And yet these men, these disciples, didn't receive the Holy Spirit at this point. That suggests they were not saved. Now Paul uses this word believed here, and some would say, well, that proves that they were saved. But the question is, what did they believe? They likely believed John the Baptist's message about the Messiah. Notice that their response also is, second half of verse 2, the NASB says it this way, no, we haven't even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. It's kind of a weird translation. Most English translations do that. But there's an alternate way to translate that phrase that fits the Greek text as well. You may have a little note in your Bible that gives you an alternate translation of that. And it would be this. No, we have not even heard whether the Holy Spirit has been given yet. That actually lines up with what John the Baptist preached. That when the Messiah comes, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I believe that that translation is a better understanding of this passage. And part of the reason for that is, the Jews knew about the Holy Spirit. It was a common teaching. Not only that, John the Baptist preached about the Holy Spirit being poured out when the Messiah would come. So does it make sense that disciples of John would say, Oh, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. That would be contrary to their their faith as Jews. It would be contrary to what John the Baptist had preached. So it's more likely that the alternate translation that we didn't know the Holy Spirit had been poured out yet. We didn't know that, that he was available. That alternate translation, I think, makes much more sense in the text, which is, again, why some translations will put that in to let you know that's a possibility. Some of the best commentaries, I believe, also suggest that that translation is a better translation. And so what we really find is Paul looking at these men saying, he's recognizing them as, as disciples of some kind. They might have been fellowshipping with, with the church or at least with the Jews there. And Paul comes upon them and says, well, what exactly do you believe? What did, who are you following? And he asks them specifically the question about the Holy Spirit because it helps them identify whether these are Christians or just disciples of John the Baptist. And when they say, well, we didn't know the Holy Spirit was poured out yet. That's because they didn't know Christ yet. So Paul asked them about, well, whose baptism did you receive then? Because that's part of the key as well. And the reason is, when Christians are baptized, Jesus had baptized them in what? The name of the Father, the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit. That's why John goes to bapt- or why Paul goes to baptism here. So Paul asked him, what baptism did you receive? Go back to verse 3 of chapter 19. 
Into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. We are disciples of John the Baptist. John's baptism was a means of expressing repentance and expectation of the Messiah. It's how you became a follower of John. Christians Christians were baptized um, through water baptism, but as a way of expressing their discipleship in Christ. I'm going to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So it's pretty clear in this passage that they were simply disciples of John, which means they were still waiting for the Messiah just as John had prophesied. They were seeking, waiting, expecting the Messiah to come. And I love the fact that these guys are still hanging out together. It means they shared something in common. It was their belief that Messiah was coming, that John's prophecy would be fulfilled. And so they're fellowshipping together. They're hanging out together. So all of this changes now. If you look at verses 4 through 7, what happens next? Paul said, John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him. That is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, meaning they became disciples now of Jesus. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were about, I'm sorry, there were 12 of them actually, not 8, but 12, it says. So all it took for these men to become believers was to be given the name Jesus. Notice there's no hesitation. There's no debate. Paul doesn't have to do a whole lot of instruction. He simply says, okay, yeah, I get it now. You're followers of John. John taught you about the baptism of repentance in expectation of the Messiah. I'm here to tell you the Messiah, the one you're waiting for, the one John prophesied, his name is Jesus. And immediately, these men respond. They get baptized. They get baptized in the name of Jesus, which means they now committed themselves as followers of his to become his disciples, moving from John to now following Jesus. And as a result, we see the Holy Spirit now poured out upon them because of their new faith in Jesus Christ. I believe what we see here is a perfect example of men who were seeking the Lord, waiting watching for him to fulfill his promise of sending his Messiah, his son. And as a result, the Lord allowed them to find him. Sent Paul to them. They placed their faith in Christ. And they now become followers of Jesus Christ. I think it's a perfect example. I don't think it's a coincidence that Paul stumbled upon these men. I believe it was a divine appointment. The Lord knew what was in their hearts knew that they had responded to John's message of repentance. They had prepared themselves to see Christ. All they needed was for somebody to introduce him and to say, this is him, just like Apollos. He responded the same way. He simply needed somebody to attach the name to John's prophecies about the Messiah. And so the Lord allows them to find him because they sought him. Now that's the complete opposite of what we're going to find in this next group. Look at verses 8 through 10. And Paul, he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So as was Paul's custom, he began teaching about Jesus in the synagogue. In the past, that didn't usually last for too long, because it didn't take the Jews very long to get irritated with Paul and what he was teaching, and they would often kick him out fairly quickly. We've got an instance prior to this where it only lasted three weeks before they gave him the boot. But in this instance, he spends three months there. And what that indicates to us, while he was speaking out boldly, he was reasoning with them, arguing with them, if you will, persuading them. They allowed him to do it for three months, which suggests that initially there must have been some openness to be willing to listen to what he was saying. But the longer Paul stayed there, the longer he continued to witness Christ to them, 
The longer he preached that Christ was the Messiah, preached about the resurrection, we know these things because of what we find elsewhere in the book of Acts, all of these things were things that Paul preached and discussed and challenged the Jews with, ultimately proving that Jesus was the answer to the question of the Messiah. And what does it tell us here? didn't take long before some of them became hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people. I love the way the NIV actually translates this. It translates it this way. Some of them became obstinate, means stubborn, obstinate, and they refused to believe. They not only refused to believe the gospel, but they slandered it in public. They slandered God's people. Notice what it says there. They publicly maligned or slandered the way. So these people became so hardened in heart, it's not just that they rejected what Paul preached, they began to slander God's people in public. That's how hard their hearts were. What we see here is a direct opposite of seeking the Lord. These were religious people claiming to have found the Lord. They were arrogant and they were proud. They refused the truth that was presented to them in the gospel. We've already established that that's not seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord is not to follow a God of your own making. I always kind of got a kick out of people who, you know, well, I believe what I believe and you believe what you believe and both can be true. Really, no. I went to my doctor. My doctor said, you have cancer. And I said, I don't think I have cancer. You believe what you believe, doctor, and I believe what I believe, and we're both true. One of us is going to die. Right? But that's what we see. Saying, I'm religious. I have my faith. I I hate that phrase. I think Christians ought to stop using the phrase, my faith... Because the world loves to use that, don't they? I'm a person of faith. I hate that phrase. I'm a person of faith. You know what? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, say, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Say, I'm a Christian. Because when you say, I'm a person of faith, that can mean anything to the world. You know? I have faith in the giant spaghetti monster. You know? And so these men, they were people of faith in the synagogues, but they were rejecting the gospel because they didn't want to meet God on his terms, but their own terms. We have an Old Testament filled with these sorts of religious people that God constantly chastised, who felt they were religious, believed they were God's people, demanded that God bless them, But they weren't seeking him with their whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. In fact, when God gave them the law, he spells out the 600 and some odd plus commandments, and they're all standing there before him, wide-eyed, going, oh, that's what we got to do? And the Lord says, don't worry about it. Because if you seek me with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you love me, this will be easy. But instead, what they chose to do to try to worship him through the mechanics of the religion, not with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They didn't seek to know him. They seek to have their religious beliefs and their philosophies and earn his favor. And as a result, just like the Old Testament Jews whose hearts were constantly hardened, these Jews in the synagogue here had their hearts hardened rejected the gospel and ultimately maligned God's people. So what happens? Look at verses 9 and 10 again. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil the way before the people, Paul withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus instead. What happened there? The Lord did not allow them to find him. Now, you might be curious why I phrased it that way. I could say, well, they didn't find him. There's more to it than that. I was very deliberate in the words I chose there. God's response to this was, he did not allow them to find him. 
There's a difference. If you remember in my introduction, the prophet said to Azza, to Azza, if you seek him, doesn't say you will find him. It says if you seek him, he will allow you or he will let you find him. Because that's what it takes. We are so corrupt, we are so laden with sin that we cannot find him on our own. He has to open our eyes. He has to reveal himself. We would not have found the Lord had he not reached down into history, sent Jesus Christ, spelled it out in black and white for us to show us this is the answer to your sin. He had to allow us to find him. And he did it by busting through our ignorance, our blindness, the work of the enemy. And so it isn't that Hezekiah said to Ezra, well, if you seek him, you'll find him. Just work harder at it. It's like, no, if you seek him, he'll allow you to find him. Because you couldn't find him on your own. So I think we have to be careful about that. If you seek the Lord, he will allow you to find him. He will allow you to discover him. But you notice it also said earlier, if you forsake him, he's going to forsake you. And I think that's important. Something we don't like about our Heavenly Father, maybe. Nobody likes to think of him as judging or pouring out wrath or holding people accountable. How often have we heard the idea that hell, oh, a heavenly loving Father would not create a place called hell. He wouldn't allow people to suffer eternally. That's just not the God I worship. You have... How many people say, the God of the Old Testament, he's a God of wrath, which is completely wrong. The God of the Old Testament is a God that is a God of mercy and grace. There's far more extensions of grace and mercy and love and compassion in the Old Testament than there is of wrath any day. But we don't like that part about God holding a people accountable or judging them for their sin. So when we say things like, he's going to forsake you if you forsake him, we don't like that. Not by you, I'm, or by us, or by we, I'm referring to just people in general. In Mark chapter 6, 11, Jesus gave these instructions to his disciples. He said, his disciples, he said, any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. What Jesus instructed his disciples to do is to go out there, witness the gospel, and those who reject you, walk away. Shake the dust off of your sandals as a testimony against them. That sounds harsh to us, does it not? We don't don't like that. But you know what? Paul followed this principle. Jump back to Acts chapter 13, verse 50. 50. But the Jews incited the devout women and women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But, look at this, verse 51, but they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Paul followed Jesus' instructions to the letter. Can you imagine him as he walked out to the city, as his heart is breaking, as his people, his own people, the Jews, reject Christ. We know from Paul's letter to the Romans that that broke his heart. He was crushed by that, seeing his own people reject Christ. But he took Jesus' words literally, reached down, took his sandal off, and in their presence, dusted it off as a testimony of God's wrath against them. Put his sandals back on and left Look at chapter 18, verses 5 and 6. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook off his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. For now on I will go to the Gentiles. Paul recognized 
what Jesus was telling him to do. Which was that as they reject, as their hearts become heart, as a testimony against them, shake the dust off and go to those who are willing to listen, to those who are willing to respond. Again, we don't like that. Don't they deserve Christ? So we see Paul repeat that even here in our passage today, though a little bit less dramatically, because what does he do? When he, when he faces their rejection, after three months of witnessing to them, after three months of pouring out his heart with them, trying to convince them that Jesus is the Messiah, trying to convince them, seek the Father and he will make himself known to you, he will show himself to you, he will allow you to find him, and they just reject that and start blaspheming him and blaspheming God's people, what does Paul do? He gathers up the disciples there, those who are willing to listen, And he leaves the synagogue. And he goes to a different place and continues to teach. So he spends the next two years teaching those who are willing to listen. Now, I have to be careful here. Because we know as we look at Paul, that doesn't mean that he abandoned the Jews. I would maybe say it this way. He reorganized his priorities. He didn't cast his pearls before swine. Just focused completely on trying to convince those that constantly rejected him. He turned to them who were willing to listen. But the very next city he would go into, what did he do? Go right back to the Jews. Preach to them until they would reject. And they would walk away as a form of judgment. A friend of mine once remarked that often one of the signs of God's judgment is that he goes silent. He stops talking. We see that sometimes with the Old Testament prophets where God just shut their mouths. We saw it with the 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. God went silent as a form of judgment against the Jews. We see it in between the 6th and the 7th seals in the book of Revelation where there's 30 minutes of silence in heaven. God stops talking before he begins to pour out his wrath with that 7th seal. It's a pattern we see with the Father that oftentimes judgment begins with silence. Stops talking. Paul even describes this in Romans chapter 1. Turn to Romans chapter 1 with me. I actually believe that this is directly applicable to what we're facing here in the United States today. There's a pattern we see in Romans chapter 1. Look at verse 18. We're going to read a chunk here. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They harden their hearts about the truth. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, which means they were aware of what he's made known to them, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their speculations. They start to lose their minds. And their foolish heart becomes darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools and exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures, meaning God's in everything, God's in the universe. They can worship whatever they want. They've rejected the truth. So what happens in verse 24? Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. In other words, God gives them over to their sin. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. So he gave them over to the lie. They worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Doesn't stop there though. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God hands them over for the second time. Verse 28 doesn't stop there. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, when they finally said, we don't want 
the truth about God. God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, unworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, in other words, they can't deny that God has revealed these things to them. The Jews in the synagogue that Paul was talking to had no excuse. They could not say, well, we didn't know Jesus. Had we only known that you were the Messiah. No excuse. They were told. And although they knew or know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. But you notice it began with God handing them over. God handing them over. God handing them over three times in this passage. And the last one, it says God hands them over to a depraved mind. What is that? It's the inability to reason any longer. The last step of God's judgment is to finally say, I'm taking your minds away. I'm going to let, you, I'm going to let your mind go where you're intent for it to go. A depraved mind, the inability to reason, to think, to recognize truth when you see it. That is a form of judgment. We don't like to think that God might do that. But it's part of his wrath. And so when Paul walks away from the Jews who are at the synagogue, it's very similar. God is taking away the witness that he sent to them because they've chosen to close their hearts and their minds. So God won't allow them to find him. It's a form of judgment. Now whether that's a permanent thing, whether it's a temporary thing, I'd like to believe that even in that particular condition, that if they change their heart, if they change their attitude, if they change their mind, if the Holy Spirit gets a hold of them, that's never too late. But it's pretty scary to think that if God hands you over to a depraved mind, that that's even possible. But maybe so. God's a compassionate, loving God. Like I said, I spent six months rejecting and rejecting and rejecting the truth and it was laid out right in front of me, but yet somehow God finally broke through but during that whole time, I genuinely was seeking to know him. I wanted to know him. I just didn't realize that I was rejecting the very thing that I needed most. And so what we find in the principles here are that those who seek the Lord, he will allow them to find him. But those who don't, he won't allow. So what's the conclusion of all of this? Both Matthew and Luke record that as Jesus was looking over the crowds one day, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, notice this, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Why would he say that? The harvest is plentiful because there are people out there that are genuinely seeking the Lord. There are people out there that simply need somebody to point them to Christ, much like me, much like many of you. Their minds haven't been completely closed off. The Lord is still willing to allow them to find him because they're out there searching. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent the disciples out into the world saying, go out to the harvest. He wouldn't have knocked Paul off his horse and said, you know what, Paul, i got a job for you. You're going to be a chosen instrument of mine? I'm going to send you before kings and princes and people that will persecute you. But you know what, Paul? There are people out there. There are people out there seeking. We see him come upon some of them here with John's disciples. And he says, I will allow them to find me. So the Lord tells him to pray that God would send out laborers into the harvest. He's talking about you and me. I think we're living in a time right now where we have probably one of the greatest opportunities in history to talk to people about Christ. 
Things are nuts right now, folks. They are literally nuts. I'm not an evangelist in gifting. I've shared that with you before. God gifts different people in different ways. I think what I'm doing here is the way that God has chosen to form me, to cause me to function, gifted me. Never been a gifted evangelist. The scriptures tell us that he places evangelists into the body of Christ, and I know guys who could leave this chair to Christ. But I've been challenged over the last few years, and especially these last few months, that one of the reasons God left us here is that he wants us to go out into the harvest and be the witnesses. It may not lead to full-blown presentations of the gospel, but we're told at a minimum that we should be able to give a hope to people about the faith we have in Christ, give answers for why we're hopeful. I shared with Dustin, I think, this week, I've been praying about um, having opportunities. One of the reasons I like having a, I'll call it a secular job, is because I knew that if I went into full-time ministry, I would spend all of my time around Christians. Many pastors do. And I knew that would be a problem for me because I think I would lose compassion for the lost. I'd lose sight of the gospel. And so in having a secular job where I'm working around unsaved people all the time, I thought that would provide me with opportunity. I'd be forced in some respects to be a witness for Christ. And so I chose to pattern my ministry after the tent-making model that we see with the Apostle Paul to some degree. Um, and the Lord has always used that. He's always given me these good opportunities around my coworkers and others because I make a point of making sure they're aware that I'm a believer and that I pastor a church and I try to drop little hints here and there, you know, that I'm hoping open up conversations and oftentimes it works. Well, when COVID hit, I found myself being stuck in my home. <laughs> Last month I made, I think, four trips or five trips out of the office or out of my home. And it's really been kind of weighing on me because I feel like I'm just sitting at home and um, so I've been praying a lot about that God would figure out ways to open up some doors, and he has in you know, pretty remarkable ways. I'm going to give you a couple of examples just quickly here. And again, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm bragging because it's not me in any form or fashion. But about three weeks ago, I was on the phone with a woman out in Kansas, and because sometimes working on the phone with these people can take 30 minutes to an hour to fix a problem that they have, you have to just chit-chat. Well, she came right out of the blue, and she asked me, she's like, so are you married? And I said, yes, I am. How many kids you have? I told her how many kids I had. And then she said, oh, okay, that was it. I thought, you return the favor. So are you married? She said, yeah, I am. She said, but I'm kind of separated right now. And for the next 30 minutes, she poured out her heart regarding the struggle. She's been separated from her husband for six years. But he's living in the upstairs. She's living in the downstairs, same house. So I thought, all right, opportunity. I said, how, how do you deal with that? What's it, what's it been like for you? And she just poured out her heart for about 30 minutes. And it gave me a great opportunity to begin talking to her about the gospel. I was able to share my life with Christ and how he's walked me through some difficult times. And she was open and she was honest. And she began to say, you know, there is this church just down the street from me. She also had shared that she had gotten involved with some mysticism and some crystals, but she wasn't quite sure about it. And I was able to say, you know, it's interesting because Paul says in Romans 1, the people have a tendency to worship the creation rather than the creator. He said, wouldn't you much rather know the one who made those crystals? She's like, oh, that's an interesting thought. So I talked with her about the one who made those crystals. By the time the conversation ended, she said, I think I'm going to check out that church down the street. Maybe I really need to do that. And then she began to tell me how much she appreciated the conversation, especially the spiritual nature of it. Then just earlier this week, on the phone with another individual from Kansas, he called about 6 o'clock at night, which is after hours. He felt bad calling me that late. He said, oh, I hope I didn't interrupt anything, Mike. And so I took advantage of that. And I said, oh, no, you really didn't. I'm just sitting here studying for my sermon on Sunday. Oh, that's right, you're a pastor. And he says, I've been meaning to ask you. And he began to ask questions. Well, do you actually have a degree? Did you go to school for that? It led to this amazing conversation because he started to share about his dad. His dad sounds like he was a Christian man. This man I was talking to was raised in a Baptist church as a young kid, but it never was personal to him. He's never been back to church since. He's now my age. But he would go for funerals and such, but that was it. And so I just laid it out there. I said, do you mind if I ask you some spiritual questions? Your dad, it sounds like a pretty amazing man. What do you suppose led him to be the man that you think? And he said, I think it might have been his faith. I said, yeah, that doesn't shock me. 
And so we began to talk and I began to ask him about where he's at spiritually and he was very open to discuss it. And he said, you know, that's interesting, Mike, because just today I got something in the mail. There's a church right across the street, a Bible church. I've never been there, but I go there to vote. He's like, today the mailman delivered a check, an offering for somebody. And so I went across to vote and I brought him the check and I began to ask them a little bit about their church. I'm thinking maybe our conversation today is God's way of telling me I need to go check out the church across the street. We talked for an hour about spiritual matters. And then just Friday, I'm in my office in Worthington. My door's closed. You know, the whole COVID thing and all that. Somebody knocks on my door. Come on in. A woman from down the hall came into my office and said, Hey, um, I need your help. I'm thinking IT immediately. And she says, No, no, it's not IT. It's a personal issue. Do you mind if we talk? Sure. So I kind of stood up, sat at the corner of the desk. She began to pour out how difficult her life has been recently because she's married to a husband who has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, but he's been involved with some drugs, over, you know, use of some crystal meth and other things, apparently. He's become extremely verbally abusive, very, very paranoid. I'm accusing her of all kinds of things. I mean, there's some, it sounds like he might even be hallucinating. But she poured out her heart. And I looked at her and I said, you know, it sounds like he has no hope. And she just broke down into tears. I think that's a lot of it. And so I began to talk to her. Well, where's your hope? How do you deal with this? How do you cope with this? I dropped the trump card on the table and said, you know I'm a pastor, right? She goes, uh-huh. And I said, so you know I'm going to talk to you about spiritual things. She said, uh-huh. And so we did. And I got a great chance to lay out the gospel and what Christ could do for her. And she just broke down in tears. Found out she also lost a son just a couple of years before her husband was diagnosed. And um, she was honest in saying, I think God was punishing me. I've been angry with him. And so I got a great chance to talk to her about God's love for her and how this wasn't punishment. But we talked about the hope. And I was able then finally, when we finished, to pray for her right there in the office. She was extremely thankful. She wasn't offended at all. I share these things just for one simple reason. There are people out there who I believe are seeking. Our job is just simply to point them to Christ. You know, I don't know what will happen to any of these three individuals ultimately in the end. I'm not one to say, let's get on our knees right now and pray to accept Jesus Christ. Just say the name and you're, you know, I'll present the gospel, challenge them, tell them what they need, and then God has to do the rest. There are people out there seeking him. They just need somebody to point them to Christ. And we can do that. It doesn't have to be a full-on gospel presentation, you know, the spiritual, the four spiritual laws from Campus Crusade or the Romans Road. But at a minimum, we can talk to them about our faith in Christ and offer them some kind of hope. Because if they are genuinely seeking him, the Lord will allow them to find him. And that's my hope for these people that the Lord will allow them to find him. I think that's the least we can do. And I think we have a great opportunity today in this world because things, again, are nuts. People are lost and confused and, you know. So my challenge to you this morning is to do that. To look around for opportunities. There's people around us that probably need to hear the gospel. That are seeking. You just don't know it. Take opportunity as best we can. Because if they are genuinely seeking, the Lord will allow them to find him. Amen?